The world is like a ride at an amusement park. And when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. I can tell you from experience, the effect you have on others is the most valuable currency there is. Don't think. Feel. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all that heavenly glory. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Hey brothers, welcome back to the Nicholas Gregoratis Show. I am your host, Nicholas Gregoratis. You know, sometimes I'll record a show and it just doesn't meet my, my quality standards. And the truth is, this is the second time I recorded with the particular guest that we have on the show today. The first time we recorded, the conversation just didn't work, in my opinion. And that's not a reflection on the guest. He's a very wise and intelligent man. It's just that the the conversation just didn't come together. I've always said that a great discussion is greater than it's the sum of its parts. You bring the intelligence and perspectives of one person and you mix them with the intelligence and perspective of another person and it creates something greater than the sum of those two people's combined uh, perspectives. It becomes something emerges from it. There's an emergent property in the conversation. And it just didn't happen the first time I spoke to this gentleman. As far as I'm concerned, it didn't happen. So it was difficult for me to ask him if we could record again. Not only because, you know, I had to swallow my pride and tell him like, I just wasn't happy with the, the previous one, but also because the truth is this guy and I, we didn't really gel. Now, that's not to say, again, that he wasn't wise or intelligent or well-spoken because he was all of those things. It's just... We just weren't on the same frequency, but I inherently knew that he had something interesting to say. I knew that there was a depth to him, and uh, I'm just glad we were able to record again because, especially towards the the latter part of the episode, I, I feel that he he shares some really cool insights. Uh, he kind of reminds me of a like a, a wise old wizard or something like that. I can't. I don't, I don't have better words to describe it than that, but he's kind of like the, the grandfather that uh, I, I, I wish I'd had, you know, this, he's had a long and, a long and interesting life and an, and an illustrious career, and you, you can really, when you dig, you, you find these, these real gems that he has, so I hope you guys enjoy this episode with Andy Schmuckler. Brothers, I'm here with Mr. Andy Schmuckler, who is a prize-winning author, radio talk show host former nominee for Congress, and a whole bunch of other things that are kind of difficult to label. And he's, he's, uh, he's not an easy man to put in a box. I've, I've been trying for a while. Either way, I'm just very happy to have you here, Andy. Thank you, Nick. Looking forward to talking with you. Yeah. I, I, as I will say in the intro, when um, I'm editing this episode, we tried to do this once before. I admittedly wasn't prepared properly for that interview. And it took a direction I didn't feel um, would be that beneficial for the audience. But I think we're, we're going to have a lot of fun today. And this one's going to uh, really resonate with them. So let's start um, with a big question, right? Uh, a more meta question. And then we will narrow it down. I want to get really a little bit more into your personality and, and find out a little bit more about your life experience. But I know you have a purpose 
in the world. And I, I want to get some of that message out as to what your purpose is. And then we'll, we'll drill a little deeper into who you are. Well, you, you know, I don't often uh, talk publicly about myself, but um, I do find myself and my life interesting. So this, this could be fun for me. For sure. I have a feeling it will be. So let's, as I said, with a big question, and that is, what do you see as the biggest problem in the world today? Well, I would say, geez, that's an inter- that is a big question. <laughs> I would say that we, we don't understand the forces that are at work in our civilization that drive things in directions that we, we wouldn't choose to have them go. Um, and that's what I've spent my life studying is those forces. I mean, you know, just just to, to give a little substance to what I just said, if you if you were to ask um, a whole assortment of randomly selected people, what would you what 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 kind of world would you like to live in? Would you like to live in a world at peace or at war? Would you like for the world to be characterized by love or by hate? Would you like for uh, people to be kind to each other or cruel to each other? You know, we could come up with a bunch of dichotomies. I think I don't really have much doubt. I mean, I haven't done that, but I, I know I've known a lot of people and uh, over a lot of years. And I think except for some really broken people, uh, almost everybody would describe the world they want to live in as being the more positive part of those dichotomies. Yet the world we actually live in, and also um, uh, from my point of view, important to know, the world as it has emerged uh, along with the whole history of civilization for the last 10,000 years has had so much of the opposite. And so the question is, why if most people, almost everybody wants to live in a really benign world, have we had a world that's been as destructive and tormented as it's been? I think the biggest problem we have in the world is that people don't understand the nature of the forces that need to be overcome for people to get the choice of what kind of world we're going to have as a species. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about the nature of those forces? Well, you sure you want to go down that, that road? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. As long as, as long as we can keep the conversation uh, reasonably apolitical um, and speak in, in broader strokes, I don't really want it to be framed within the context of American politics, right. if possible. Right. Well, I can I can avoid that, though, though, you know, the country is in a crisis and my perspective on the problem of uh, of civilization um, does illuminate the nature of the problem that we face in this country now. So but I won't go there. Uh, I my life hinged on a moment in 1970 which will give uh, your audience an idea of uh, how old I must be, because uh, I wasn't in the crib when it happened. Um, it, I saw something about a dynamic which would emerge with inevitably if a species steps onto the, onto the path to civilization. And by that, I mean, well, a species 
this is the first time it had happened, you know, in three and a half billion years of life on Earth. For the first time, a creature started extricating itself from the niche in which it evolved biologically. That's a major step. It did so by inventing its own way of life. Hunting gathering societies had been more or less continuous with primate societies out of which we had emerged. And those were enmeshed in an ecological order that had been shaped by the process of natural selection, which basically proceeds by choosing life over death, what can survive into the future over what cannot, on an ongoing basis and make sure that the interactions of all the elements of the system are compatible with the long-term viability of the whole system. So I, I say that the, the lion and the zebra and the grass work together to create a, 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 a perpetual motion machine, even as they devour each other. But when you extricate yourself from the niche in which you, you have evolved biologically, not through genetic change over eons, but through uh, the, invent the, the, the discoveries of domestication of plants and animals that are possible for a species with our creative intelligence, which was unprecedented in degree, then you, you enter into a zone where there is no order that, that regulates the interactions for the sake of... Uh, the whole system's viability and synergy. Instead, you, you enter into an unprecedented kind of disorder, which is the disorder of anarchy. Anarchy, which in my lifetime, I, we, we've had a chance to see it uh, twice uh, that I can, I can think of when, uh, when there's no order, like in Lebanon in the 1970s and early 80s. And in Somalia in the 90s, you see what happens when there's anarchy. And that is that the system becomes dominated by the spirit of warlords. Warlords are precisely what you would expect to prevail under circumstances of anarchy. Uh, anarchy having been described by the famous philosopher Thomas Hobbes as uh, uh, an inevitable war of all against all. And who will prevail in such a system? So what prevails is the spirit of the warlord, the people who, can, who have what it takes to win in a war of all against all. And that's not a function of the creature that has unwittingly entered into this anarchic situation. And I, I won't proceed further unless you invite me to, except to say, I believe that I have more or less proven, I mean, that's a pretty big claim, but let me just uh, say that I'm a, I was trained to be a critical thinker. I've been looking at this idea for uh, 52 years and I don't see any holes in it. So I call it proven, I, uh, but it doesn't, it, it takes a few steps to show the proof. I have proven something from which the following two statements follow. One of the statements is that the ugliness we see in human history 
is not human nature writ large. And the other statement, which is quite related to that one, is that any species on any planet, anywhere in the cosmos, that takes the step that our species took on this planet 10 or 12,000 years ago, will inevitably plunge itself into a social evolutionary process that is governed by the spirit of the warlord or the gangster that is just as destructive and tormented as what we have been going through uh, all these millennia and we have not yet transcended this problem. So we are challenged as a species to get our act together, to create order to displace that anarchy in order to essentially for, for humankind to survive for the long haul. And, and I'll, I'll stop there and let you choose what direction you want to go of the many directions that are available right now. Sure. So, uh, Andy, uh, it's interesting because I've had a previous guest who's come to similar conclusions, such as yourself and my, my great friend Rocco also has uh, a similar perspective. I guess my next question is, is and, and I'd like to close out this particular topic before I start asking you some more uh, or some, some questions along a different line of thinking, but what are your, what are your proposed solutions well, for this? Okay, uh, that, that's, a, that's a nice next step. Let me just say that um, another thing that I feel that I've proven, and, I, and to me, this is uh, much more recent. I've been trying to spin out the, uh, some of the consequences that weren't visible to me at first from all this, but one of the uh, one of the consequences is that a species that steps onto the path of civilization will will have its powers grow cumulatively over time, and eventually that cumulative growth of power will give that creature's civilization the capacity to destroy itself. Now, not quite in my lifetime, but fairly close. We've seen the emergence of two ways that we can destroy ourselves. One is a nuclear holocaust, and the nuclear age began shortly before I was born. Uh, and the other way we can destroy ourselves is through ecological destruction. And I believe that inevitably any creature that becomes civilized is going to have the ability to destroy itself. And so the central challenge that, it, that any civilized, civilized civilization creating creature must meet eventually is to either, is to order its civilization well enough, soon enough that it can, that it can survive for the long haul. And I think it's a toss up. Uh, for this species on this planet, but uh, either we have to create, we, our challenge is to create a world in which nuclear annihilation is either impossible or negligibly possible, and a, and a, a, a way of dealing with the uh, biosphere in which 
um, unlike what's happening with the unraveling of the climate system right now, we can't. The, we have to create a, a world that's in which our relationship with that, with the living planet on which we depend for our survival, is harmonious and sustainable. So, the the, the what I, I those are those are the two challenges that we need to to meet before we destroy ourselves, and so. The solution that I suggest is, is, is sort of a, it couched in general terms. I would say, first we have to envision what would a civilization have to, how would it have to be organized? What would it look like if we had indeed reached the point where those two forms of self-destruction had become impossible? That we were not going to destroy ourselves through war. What would how would we what would that look like? What would what would the how would the world be ordered? And that we would not destroy ourselves by uh, being such a, a reckless bull in the biospheric climate uh, 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 biospheric China shop that we undo ourselves that way. Mm-hmm. And once we've envisioned the destination that we must reach soon enough, then the next question to ask is, what are the steps that we could wisely and prudently take now that would give us the best chance of reaching that destination soon enough, which might mean in generations, it might mean in centuries, but it means looking to where we got to get to and working to get there. Yeah, I mean, that it sounds, it sounds logical and rational. Uh, and I, I completely agree with you. And I appreciate you sharing that, Andy. I think, you know, when I was when I was uh, pondering how I was going to approach the second interview of ours, I, I think what I'd like to do now is move on to to topics that are more uh, directly applicable to the individual, in, in particular, the individual man's plight. Uh, because that's that's what my work and my my podcast and stuff is about. It's about becoming the best individual you can be, right? Yeah, let's uh, and, go for it. Yeah, so uh, I'm, there's a, a quote which I'm, I can't remember properly now, but it's just, it's it, sh- it shows the idea that before you can start fixing uh, a community or a society, you first got to fix yourself, right? You first got to master yourself. So I've chosen in this lifetime, I'm not a politician and I don't really work on large scales like that. I work more within myself. I'm trying to get myself aligned and healthy and self-actualized. And then I help people in my immediate vicinity and then they help others. So that's, that's the path I've taken. It's more of a bottom up than a top down um, route. So, you know, on your website, the thing that interested me the most is you speak about uh, you have an article called the sacred space of lovers, which uh, I found pretty interesting. So before I even ask you some questions on that, could you just um, describe what that means to you, the sacred space of lovers? Well, I, I fortunately have the experience of uh, uh, being in a marriage in which um, the, the wholeness and the, uh, the pleasure and the love and the uh, exchange of kindness and the open-heartedness. And um, it has given me uh, experiences that um, feel sacred to me. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and and I, I define the secret the sacred as um, as value experienced to the nth degree. I mean, we you know on a day to a moment to moment basis, we mm. we all experience some things as uh, as good and some things as not so good. Um, but there are moments where um, where we break through to a a deeper level of um, uh, of of the importance and the value and the goodness and the full, the the my cup runneth over uh, kind of a of a feeling, and um, since I've been working pretty much my whole life, though uh, in 2004 I was working on a, a project called Mapping the Sacred, mm -hmm. uh, which I loved because it was unlike the rest of my work, which has been always trying to trying to understand what's broken and how to fix it. It was such a pleasure. But anyway, uh, what I saw going on in the world around me took me off of that. But I, I, I feel that um, that there is a, a, a realm that we can experience. Or I don't know if everybody has that capacity, but it seems to be widespread in humanity, a capacity to break through to something deeper and richer that tells us this is where it's at. Uh, this is valued to the nth degree. This, it goes beyond just, oh yeah, this is good. It goes beyond that. And, and I wanted, um, after spending a lot of years working on the American crisis, which is involved looking into something very dark, very scary. Uh, I mean, I felt uh, after a few years, like I had PTSD. Uh, for the first time in my life, I felt, I said to my wife, I got to take a vacation. I mean, I've never said that. I love my work, but I needed to get away from it. Uh, uh, after years of doing that, I, I wanted to work on something that was more beautiful, um, more nourishing of my spirit and not, not so dark and stressful to look at. So that's why I embarked on a project uh, called The Sacred Space of Lovers. And um, originally I had in mind that it would be a book and I was going to interview um, a lot of couples that um, had managed over a long period of time to build something that was even richer than just the falling in love stage. Um, I did some such interviews, but I found that it wasn't uh, uh, it wasn't so easy um, to get what I was looking for, and I drifted back into um, my previous mission. Okay, I mean, I'd I'd still like to stick with that topic and dive That's a little fine. Bit deeper I'd, into I'd, it. I'll give you what I got. <laughs> okay, cool. Thanks, Andy. So um, you mentioned in that in in the article that uh, I think one of the the, the questions you asked at the beginning of when you, when you started that, that um, I guess, exploration was can the fire and magic of romantic connection be, uh, does it have to fade over time or can we, can we extend that and, and keep it going? And I guess my first question would be, what was the answer you found to that? Well, I, I embarked on the uh, on the project because of the answer I had already found for in, in my own marriage. I mean, uh, my marriage um, to April has been has always been a good one. I mean, I've always been 
happy to be married to her. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I would not have guessed that the years after we had been married for 20 years would be deeper and richer than the first 20 years. So that was, that was what, um, that was what impressed me that mm -hmm. it, there was a way to get, um, you know, people say the fire goes out and like that, but no, I, that wasn't, I mean, it was my, it's my second marriage, I should say. And mm -hmm. uh, the trajectory of the first marriage I was in, um, well, wasn't so positive. Um, so I, 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 I don't assume that you can easily get there. Uh, but one of the things that my wife and I have is that we, we have found ways of being completely honest with each other and making that work, um, which I, I think is good in every relationship and not achievable in every relationship. Mm -hmm. I'd be inclined to agree with you. It's, uh, I always say wherever there is, wherever you find overlap, there is truth. And that idea of, of authenticity and honesty, it, it overlaps uh, in the opinions of a lot of people who I respect and admire. So I know that there's truth there. Uh, you know, in the article, you speak about how if you just look at it from an evolutionary perspective, um, you know, a male strategy is a successful male strategy for survival and propagation is zero commitment. Uh, I think you call it the Casanova strategy where a man can just go and sleep with and impregnate as many more women as he possibly can. And that will ensure his genetic um, survival long after he's gone without any, any, I don't know, he doesn't have to allocate any resources or time or care or attention. Mm -hmm. Now, I guess this is quite a complex question, but if the, the guy listening to this, who's, I don't know, 30 years old, he's been divorced, he looks around himself and sees very few examples, exceedingly few examples of people who've been in happy, long-term relationships, especially marriages. He knows that if he just opens his smartphone and goes on one of these dating apps, he can... Uh, meet up with a girl tomorrow night, take her out for a drink and probably sleep with her within a few hours and do this repeatedly. Um, it doesn't even have to impregnate her because of birth control and he can just have his fun. Um, why, why would you say, I guess, sell it, sell it to this guy, sell, sell, sell it to this guy, the, the other road, right? The one that, that you've okay. taken and the one yeah, I'm very interested in this. I mean, I'm enjoying the, 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 these questions that you're asking. I mean, uh, nobody's interviewed me about these issues, uh, and I have given them a, a lot of thought. So it's, it's, it's fun for me. Um, Happy to hear that. Well, for, first of all, I, I would say that, the, that you know, uh, loveless sex um, can be fun. Um, but I don't think that the value to the nth degree, my cup runneth over the sacred space of lovers is, uh, is to achieve, be achieved at the, by that route. There's something um, in our nature, um, I would say, that uh, calls us. Uh, but, you know, if the guy is 30 years old in, in your hypothetical, um, I, don't, I don't know what his capacities are. I don't know 
the family he grew up in uh, may or may not have um, nourished his capacity for deep intimacy. You know, it, it may be for some people, given who they've developed into uh, up to that point, that some roads are closed or a lot of work would have to be done for some roads to get opened. Mm. Um, so I, I don't want to, you know, but let me just say that I, um, I just wrote a piece that was, you know, I have a weekly op-ed piece and, and sometimes I do kind of, uh, strangely un-op-ed like things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Last Saturday's piece was, uh, uh, about contact with the sacred realm, um, which I believe, um, since it seems to be widespread in the human gene pool, that capacity, uh, that to me says that there must be something life-serving about it. Uh, mm -hmm. And the, in this particular uh, way of contacting the sacred realm in, in the sacred space of lovers, you know, I, I think that's, uh, that's sort of like evolution has crafted into us a bingo, you found something of value here. Mm -hmm. um, so if that's life-serving, now why would it be life-serving? And, and, and the answer I would, I would offer is, yeah, it's true that um, a male, if the name of the game in evolution is, can you get your DNA out into the future? Uh, and if, if for the female, um, that game is played in a, uh, with some uh, different costs and benefits uh, guiding the strategy, uh, you know, like being pregnant for nine months and having to deliver a child and then having the child, you know, uh, all those are not uh, uh, necessarily on Casanova type males. Um, but what, so why would there be a payoff for the sacred space of lovers? And my answer to that is, well, you know, there are a lot of species that have lots of offspring you know, I think about frogs uh, you know, in the pool and all those eggs and stuff, mm -hmm. you know, but they don't invest much and, and only a small fraction of them really uh, uh, make it into the future. Um, with human beings, we don't have quite so many and, uh, and it's not such a terribly small fraction, but for us as cultural animals, the job is not just impregnating a female, it is having our young grow up equipped to thrive and to form families which in themselves are equipped to thrive. Mm. And that requires it not just a female around, it requires a male who will protect them, a male who will help with the education and the enculturation of them so they can be productive and, and harmonious members of a functioning society. Uh, it's a much more complex game for us than for the frogs or fish who spawn. Mm. So uh, there is the Casanova um, strategy, and, and I believe that the that um, Genghis Khan and his sons have a Y chromosome that's really widespread over a large swath of, of, uh, of Asia. Yeah, one in eight, <laughs> I think one in eight people in uh, Eurasia is descended from Genghis Khan, one of his um, sons. Yeah, so, you know, I, I, 
uh, can't argue with success in those terms, but uh, the fact that there is greater, deeper fulfillment to be found by another route, which has to do with the uh, nourishing uh, relationship as a couple that provides the ideal kind of context for the raising of healthy uh, children who will also create nourishing families and be part of a, a healthy society. Um, that method, I think that uh, evolution has told us that one works too mm. for the yeah, man. What, what a nuanced and intelligent answer. I really appreciate that, Andy. Uh, I'm reading a, a book at the moment that's absolutely incredible. It's called Under the Banner of Heaven. I'm not sure if you've read it, but it's about the fundamentalist Mormon communities in the Southwest, um, Southwestern part of the United States. And, you know, like, I think on some level, especially if he's a sensual man with high levels of testosterone, there is a fantasy that, that, uh, every man who's, who's like that has, which is this idea of like having multiple women in his life to, to mm. um, you know, I don't want to say please him, but just to experience like sexual variety is I guess the best way to put it. And reading this book, these, these fundamentalist Mormon communities have actually been built upon that very idea. So you'll have, you know, the, the men in these communities will have sometimes upwards of 70 wives each. Right. And the fascinating thing for me reading this book has been to see just, just how much misery those particular lifestyles propagate. Like the, the women are almost in universally deeply unhappy. Um, there's a lot of uh, broken homes. There's a lot of inbred genetic deficiencies it, it's just i don't know it's one of those things where someone once said to me many years ago a friend of mine he said most of the time in life the fantasy is better than the reality and i um i think this might be one of those one of those cases well I, i'm interested to hear that i don't know i don't know that i have anything to contribute to what you just said i mm. um I, I i what there is that I experience in, in, in um, our empty nest stage of life um, where uh, my wife and I and two um, wonderful kitty cats uh, share uh, a loving space. Um, uh, I, I, I don't think it would feel the same if I had 70 women, uh, <laughs> even, if I, even if I had more square footage in my house. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, very often one relationship or relationship with one person can be difficult enough. To, and then adding more people into that generally it's, it's my understanding creates an exponential or even logarithmic compounding of the difficulty and the challenges involved. You know, one um, of the things, you know, one of the things that I feel that I have to offer, um, uh, is an understanding of there being uh, uh, two forces at work in the world that act very much like good and evil. Um, mm -hmm. uh, don't have to be called by those names, but I, I show the forces. And um, But you, the 
what occurred to me when you're talking about that is that the um, the ancient world, with its tyrannies and enslavements and uh, uh, imperial uh, wars and uh, putting Conquest. cities to the yeah. to the sword, uh, um, in that context, we also see uh, that the ruler um, would have a harem. Uh, you know, that's one. You know, or, or you know, a lot of wives, uh, um, and I would at least have some suspicion. Um, going back to that, you know, the the spirit of the warlord, it's not a loving spirit. What an amazing, what an amazing uh, connection you've made there. That's yeah, really so, expanded expanded my perception of this particular topic. Thank you for that, Andy. So these are guys who who love to plunder cities and have all the treasures brought back for their treasuries. And uh, um, they also want to have, you know, lots and lots of women um, that they control. Uh, and they have eunuchs that, uh, uh, that, that tend their harems, but are incapable of uh, trespassing on their property uh, in a sexual way. Um, well, I don't know what it's really like and, you know, whether if I were in that position, I'd find a way of making that into a sacred space of lovers. Uh, uh, but my guess <laughs> is that there's a brokenness that, you know, that is part of what I've been exploring for the last 17 or 18 years. That's been of reverberating through the human system because of that anarchy in the spirit of the, of the gangster or the warlord, uh, that, that brokenness is, it has put together, um, uh, has, has brought certain kinds of men to positions of power who are not necessarily capable of the sacred space of lovers mm -hmm. because the open heart does not put whole cities to the sword. Mm. or enslave other people. Yeah. What, what, uh, thank you so much for that perspective. I really appreciate it, Andy. Uh, Andy, you, you know, the, the overwhelming sense I, I get from you is, is like, the, or the, the way my, my mind attempts to label you is, is as the wise elder. So it, to, to kind of round out the, the last part of this discussion, I'd, I'd love to ask you a few questions uh, that hopefully will allow you to impart some of that that wisdom to to the audience, and and hopefully some of that some of your answers will include some some practical uh, steps that that um, will help us lead better lives as men. Uh, and I guess the first one is when and where were you happiest in your life? Well. That's it, really. Well, I, I had a boyhood. Uh, my, my father was a professor of economics. His first job was at Michigan State, mm -hmm. uh, East Lansing, Michigan. And, and I had a boyhood there. It's, you know, it's sort of a golden age of my life. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I just sort of uh, love to think about how I roamed that campus and on my bicycle or on foot and collected Coke bottles and traded them in for, uh, for money so that I could buy baseball cards and, and played sandlot baseball all the time and got to watch, uh, go with my dad to watch Michigan State play football. And they were the best team in the country at the time. Anyway, that was very nice. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, uh, Putting a smile on my face, just thinking about it. Yeah. 
Oh, I just love to think about the smell of the autumn leaves and hearing the bands marching down Grand Rapids uh, uh, Avenue, if that's the name of the street. I haven't been there for, uh, what is it? Uh, well, it's over 60 years. Um, but uh, let me just say that if it weren't for the weight of my concerns about the big picture right now, mm. this would be well up there uh, as a golden period of my life. Uh, I'm 76 and I still have, well, I can't, you know, I can't touch the rim when I leap off the floor. It doesn't even deserve the name leap. Um, I no longer have the impulse when I see a picnic table to jump over it. Uh, I will not race my sons on a sprint, uh, anymore. So I've lost a few things, but none of the things that matter most to me. So this is a wonderful time in my life because, well, my marriage and my creative juices are flowing and I have a sense of purpose and my, my uh, going over all my life's work and uh, looking at how I followed my calling. And that's a really important word, which I'm sure... Um, you could take us down a path on if you wanted to. Uh, mm. Seeing that I've been true to my calling, um, you know, Eric Erickson has these, this theory about the stages of life. Uh, integrity versus despair is the last one. I don't know if I want to call this the last stage. I mean, maybe uh, drooling will be the last stage, but um, <laughs> uh, to, to be able to review my life and see even though it's, it's really not been an easy life. Um, I could have had it a lot easier if I had chosen ease over pursuing my calling. Um, mm. But there's a feeling of integrity that, uh, you know, like Frank Sinatra singing, I did it my way. Mm. Um, <laughs> I, I, I feel of, um... a sense of fulfillment from that. When you, just, when you describe that, I'm reminded of uh, something I read when I was a teenager, which said, live a good and honest life so that when you're old, you'll be able to look back and enjoy it a second time. And it seems as if you're, you're someone who's really embodied that. I'm not saying that you're old, but let's be well, honest, you're not, you're not young anymore. Well, I, 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 I realize that at 76, I must be at least halfway, you know, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, it's also, I mean, I have, I have three children and one of, one of my children and my daughter, um, she just naturally um, took the course to become uh, a clinical psychologist yeah. and that's her calling. And she, she juggles a lot of things. She's got kids and, you know, house and all that. So I'm not saying she's got an easy life, but I know that there are some people who get uh, a lot of rewards um, and the path is wide open and the society has created a path for people with that calling. Uh, and I respect that utterly. Um, I haven't, um, for better and for worse, my calling was a road much less traveled by. Mm -hmm. And that meant more difficult. Um, and 
my two sons seem to be more like that too. Yeah, well, I respect you for choosing the road less traveled. Besides following your calling, if you could give one piece of advice to a younger man out there who's listening to this and, and just wanting to live the best life possible and just be the best expression of, of himself, what, what would it be? What's the first thing that comes to mind, Andy? Oh, geez. Um, you've asked me so many questions nobody's asked me before. Uh, <laughs> that's that's um, my job, I guess. <laughs> yeah. One of my firstborn son's great gifts is improv. Um, <laughs> so I have to be good at improv. Um, yeah, too. it must be within you for sure. Um, you, you said something about, uh, you know, like from the bottom up and, you know, the, in order to make the better world, you make your, I, I don't, I think both roots are important because a broken world breaks us and mm. whole people also can help to make the world. Uh, so both have to proceed together. Mm -hmm. um, so at the level of what you're asking, I would say um, it is good to keep growing uh, and to, you know, that, and, and to give a, a really good faith try to overcome, to discover and overcome one's limitations, to heal one's wounds and all that. When I was in my 20s, uh, um, I, I was very aware of um, the ways I was not the person I ideally wanted to be. Mm. Um, and I, I went into therapy um, um, more than once. Uh, between the ages of uh, like 22 and uh, 30. Uh, mm -hmm. I have a brother who's a clinical psychologist uh, um, and a very deep fellow. And I, 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 he's not, I've never done therapy with him, but I, uh, he's somebody I can talk to and I feel like I've come up against some, um, uh, some knot in my life I'd like to untie or some dilemma I want to resolve or, you know, mm -hmm. some uncertainty about how do I want to proceed from here. So um, I, I've never stopped being some, oh, yeah, here's, a, here's, a, here's something I could say. You know, a lot of men don't ask for advice. <laughs> I, I, I've always been an advice seeker. I don't always follow the advice I get, but I, I, I've collected in my life um, a, a variety of people who, who have good judgment uh, in one area or another, not, mm. not necessarily in every area. Um, but I, I, I wish I had more people I could turn to uh, because um, one of the traps that I think our culture puts uh, men into is the idea of being uh, self-sufficient and, and autonomous, mm. you know, the, the, that connects with the self-made man, which is, a, of course, a, a fiction. Um, I mean, there's there's a certain amount of truth to it. Uh, we can make ourselves into something. Um, but I, I would say, find people who are worth getting advice from and get it. You, you don't have to follow it. But listen to wise people. The, the wisest you can find for any given purpose. It might be a lawyer. It might be a clergyman. It might be a psychotherapist. It might be a teacher. Uh, 
you know, how should I proceed with this? How, how do I get from where I am to where I want to be? Um, so I, I, I've done a lot of that. And, and um, there, there did reach a point where I also felt like, okay, you know, as the twig is bent, bent so grows the tree. Um, there are things I can see about myself just about every day um, that aren't what I would ideally choose. Mm. Um, but I've worked on them a bunch. I've come up against my limits. I've accepted the, that I am who I am. I think it's pretty good. And um, I'm not going to beat myself up over the fact that if I could design myself from the ground up, I would have these other virtues that I don't have. Hmm. Well, I think that's, that's sound advice. It's one of the ways I live my, my life is I always seek counsel from others. I always seek to find people who've excelled in an area that I want to master and, and model them, or at the very least get a perspective from them. And yes, uh, you mentioned uh, having a mentor uh, um, hmm. and you, you, I think you mentioned him at the beginning of this show too. Um, yeah. I'm so, going to connect you with him. I think you and he are going to have a great conversation. So, so um, I, 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 I I respect that you have a mentor. My dad, um, I was very fortunate to have two great teachers as parents. Um, you know, they had their limitations too, but they, you know, I, I had real opportunities with them. Mm. Uh, but my dad died when I was 21, which was uh, just about when I started taking the road less traveled. So I really could have used dad to turn to um, and, and I kept on looking for a good while, uh, maybe for the next uh, I don't know, 10, or, 10 or 12 years, uh, uh, various older men would come into my life. Uh, some of them are uh, a bit famous, um, but I never did find another really good father. But for 21 years, I had one. And, um, and, and, and I think mentor, mentors are very valuable. I, I love the stories of... Um, you know, like uh, the various traditions, like uh, the Zen stories of Zen masters and their disciples and Sufi masters and their disciples and Hasidic masters and their disciples and Socrates and his disciples. That whole uh, pattern of um, uh, an older man uh, or woman, uh, the wise old woman is definitely a, a major figure too, um, who who can who can provide a, a guidance that points out the pathway forward. I, I think that that is um, something American men are maybe loath to take because hey, you're supposed to do it on your own. You don't go to doctors because you'll take care of it yourself. You know it. Independence is good, but only up to a point. Absolutely. And it's been a, a great conversation. I really appreciate you. And I'm sure people listening are going, are going to want to find out more about you and your books and your, your movement. Where's the best place for them to go if they want to do that? Well, um, I think it would be good to spell my name. Is that okay to do? Sure. Yeah, please. Because, uh, you know, if my name were Smith, I wouldn't bother unless it was spelled S-M-Y-T-H-E. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've lived last... with the same challenge my whole life. I'm with you. Oh, yeah. Gregoriadis. Yeah, nicely great, done. Greek, great Greek name. Thank you. Um, mine is not Greek. It is Schmuckler, S-C-H. 
M-O-O-K-L-E-R. If you want to see uh, in depth what I claim to have proved about um, the what has driven the human story in unfortunate ways that we need to overcome, uh, the name of the book is The Parable of the Tribes, and it is still in print. Um, Wonderful. If you want to get that plus the the other, I mean, that idea came to me in 1970, but I've built uh, what I call an integrative vision, which includes a lot of other pieces that are that are combined with it to uh, show a lot more about what we're dealing with in this world. Mm-hmm. I, I have a website called a better human Great. Um, and and um, that's a place to look for. Uh, well, that's where you saw the sacred space of lovers. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Um, that's one of the portals. I think I've got maybe maybe a dozen portals at this point. Right. Well, let's this, let's this stick podcast, with that one and and not not confuse the audience. So we'll we'll send them to to start at um, a better human story which is a great site. I spent quite a lot of time going over it. There's some really good content on there. Andy, thank you so much for your time. I thoroughly appreciate you, my man. Thank you, Nick. I've, I've enjoyed uh, having you, having you explore with me, me and what I've come to understand. It's been enriching for me. That was a really difficult conversation for me, especially the initial part. I'm at a, a place in my life where I'm quite burned out and quite jaded when it comes to end of the world prophecies, not just because of all the conversations that I've had about it, including with uh, Rocco, Andy, another gentleman whose name escapes me, but there was another episode we did a few months ago where the guy was claiming the same thing that we're headed for this inevitable doom. And that stuff, You know, I could be accused of just sticking my head in the sand, but I just find that when I engage with that, it doesn't, it doesn't inspire me in any way. It doesn't elevate me. It doesn't, it it just doesn't help me look for a solution uh, or it doesn't help me get into a state where I start to look for a solution. It actually just paralyzes me. So it may or may not be true that the world is going to end if we don't do something about it. What I do know is that engaging with those types of prophecies for me in particular, is not effective. So I kind of, I don't want to say I'm done with them, but you probably won't hear much more about that from me for a while on the show. Uh, However, the second half I found was really interesting, in particular that sacred space of lovers theme. And Andy helped me shift the perspective that I'd had for a long time on our evolutionary biology and the survival of the fittest uh, evolutionary meme that has been implanted in our minds specifically that thing he said about how you know conquering and pillaging and subjugating is not the energy of an open heart i thought that was for that insight alone it was worth doing that episode i hope you guys enjoyed it and whether or not the world's going to end Remember, we're all alone in this together. See you in a week.